allow me to add to the introduction that you received already this morning and the welcome. Thank you uh, for being here, either online or for the few that are able to gather with us in person. I'm really glad that although we are doing this, uh, this lockdown thing again and figuring it all out, that we're able to have a few people here uh, with us this morning. It's a pleasure to be here celebrating Easter today. Well, we left off Good Friday in a bit of an awkward place, to say the least. Those of you who are here would know, um, or those online as well, that we purposely ended the service with silence and reflection and really little to no resolve, ending the time with awkwardness, a what now? What do we do with this all? Really just to help build anticipation for Sunday. And little did we know as we planned this that some who were able to gather here on Friday wouldn't be able to be here on Sunday, thus even building the anticipation even more. What a joy it is, though, that there is only a little bit of discomfort for us as we wait, because unlike Jesus' friends and his family at the time that we talked about on Friday, we do know the end of the story. We've been singing about it this morning. We could leave Good Friday with anticipation knowing that Jesus did not stay in the grave, but he rose to life again. And that's what we're going to talk about today. I know, big surprise, talking about the resurrection on Easter. But where we went through the actual narrative of the story on Friday, and Josiah led us there as well this morning, we're going to go somewhere a little bit different today. We're going to look at some of Paul's words talking about the resurrection and just how important it is in one of his letters. And I'll spoil it right now and say the resurrection is important. We're going to learn that today. So if you have a Bible with you and you want to learn, uh, turn with us, we're going to be going to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 this morning. Now, since humanity has existed, in general, people like to be able to understand and have an explanation for things that don't make sense to them. Now, some of us are completely fine remaining in our confusion about certain things. So, for example, whenever I think about refrigeration or air conditioning, anything that artificially creates cold with power, it makes absolutely no sense to me. It, it baffles me completely. I have no idea how that could possibly ever work. It might be literal, actual magic, for all I know, because it doesn't make sense to me. But I am totally fine to remain in my ignorance about cooling and never understand how something powered and hot can make things cold, because I really just don't care that much, and I kind of like the mystery, if I'm being honest. But for most of us, we know that feeling of seeing something or hearing about a certain event and trying to understand and explain it rationally and logically. Now, this has been happening since the world began. Exodus 3 tells us that when Moses saw a bush that was on fire but not burning up, he thought to himself, well, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. It's confusing, so let's check it out if we can. In John 9, one of my favorite stories in all of the Gospels, when Jesus heals a man born blind, we read that some of his neighbors who had known this boy or this man his entire life just rationalized, well, that can't be him. It must just be someone different. It can't be the same person. It doesn't make sense. The Pharisees assume that he's lying. They ask his parents, was he really born blind? We think you're making it up. It doesn't make sense. Let's try to understand it. 
I even read an article recently where someone tried to explain away the plagues that happened in Egypt as rare but possible natural phenomena involving weather, weather patterns and the earth's core and structure. Because the idea of a God existing that could actually cause such events was beyond this person's realm of belief. It can't be possible, so let's find an alternate explanation. Well, the problem as we, in fact, celebrate this morning is that the Bible is full of events and happenings that by their very nature cannot be explained by natural means. Our God is a supernatural God. Now, of course, there's plenty about Christianity that might sound good to the rest of the world. You know, love your neighbor, be kind, care for the poor. But as soon as we start to talk about miraculous healings, or water walking, or creation of something from nothing, many people in our world today are unable or unwilling, quite frankly, to wrap their heads around it. And when we start talking about a man who is also God, who was killed, but then came back to life, and then promised that anyone who believes in him will also be resurrected, I mean, let's face it, to the rest of the world, that is just plain weird. Right? It doesn't make sense. Well, not all of us are always comfortable being weirdos, myself accepted, of course. I, I know who I am. I'm a weird person. I'm fine with that. But not all of us are comfortable being weirdos. And since we can't explain it away, sometimes I think we just try and dodge it. We try and focus on those easier-to-swallow aspects of Christianity. You know, let's focus on gracious and loving Jesus. Great public speaker Jesus who helped the poor and the oppressed. How could anyone find that disagreeable? Let's focus on that. Let's talk about peace and comfort and unity and all the benefits that come with being a part of the local church. That sounds fun. Let's talk about that instead. Now, I hope you can see I'm being facetious here. These are all good and important aspects of our faith. But as we're going to see today, the literal physical resurrection of Jesus Christ, as confusing and unbelievable as it may be, it is the absolute foundation of our faith upon which everything else stands. And without it, everything else comes tumbling down. So if you're with me, let's embrace the weird today and read first Corinthians chapter 15, starting in verse one. <clears throat> now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel. I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand by this gospel. You are saved. If you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, Otherwise, you have believed in vain. Now, the first couple of verses of chapter 15 serve as a bit of an introduction to the topic at hand that Paul's going to be addressing. In the chapter before, chapter 14, he's been talking about worship in the church and what that should look like. And so here he's really starting to change streams of thought. And so he's introducing the idea. So he's writing to, first of all, the brothers and sisters. So these are believers in the church in Corinth. And basically, he's going back to the gospel, the good news that they had all heard and believed. He makes it clear that the message of the gospel leads to salvation if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you, he says in verse 2. Now, this is not a suggestion that the Corinthian people are at risk of losing their salvation if they don't hold firmly. But rather, it's to emphasize that salvation in the first place 
requires belief. It requires you to hold fast, to hold to that belief that was preached in the gospel. Elsewhere in Romans 1, verse 16, Paul writes, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. Well, what he's saying here is if the gospel, on the other hand, doesn't bring salvation, then believing it is in vain. He says, otherwise, you have believed in vain. If the gospel doesn't bring salvation, you've believed in vain. Now, this is the start of a major theme in this chapter, which is vanity or uselessness. In fact, Paul, throughout this chapter, uses three or four different words at different times in different places to basically say, if X isn't true, all of this is worthless. If X isn't true, all of this is in vain. Now, we've talked about in the past how biblical authors often use repetition to add emphasis or draw attention to a point. But using multiple different words, all with very similar definitions in a short span of verses, can also have a similar effect here. So clearly, Paul is trying to draw our attention to this topic. So what he's saying here is if the gospel doesn't save, then believing in that gospel is in vain. And so with the introduction of this topic out of the way, Paul is now going to transition into reminding his readers some of the details of just what that gospel or that good news really is that he referred to. So let's keep reading in verse 3. Paul says, For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. Now, some of you may remember a, a year, a couple, I don't know, time has really no meaning anymore. A couple years ago, I think, uh, a gentleman by the name of Dr. Larry Moyer came and spoke with our church about evangelism. He's from Evantel Ministries. And one of the things that he said that day that sticks with me time and time again, because he just repeated it so, so much. Some of you already, I can see, are thinking about it. You remember, he said the core of the gospel is just 10 simple words, right? Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead. Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead. And that is what Paul is reemphasizing here. This is the gospel. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Paul says these details are of first importance. And he emphasizes not just that these events happened, but that they happened according to the scriptures. Because Christ's death on the cross and his resurrection was a fulfillment of centuries and centuries of prophecy. This is the gospel, and it was prophesied in Scripture. Keep reading, verse 5. Uh, on the third day, according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, or Peter, and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Now, this is not meant to be an exhaustive list of every single person that saw Jesus after his resurrection, but it's to make clear that it was not just, you know, one or two people that had a hallucination. It wasn't just a small group of people that decided, let's make up this lie. Hundreds and hundreds of people saw physical Jesus 
And many of whom, at the time of Paul's writing this, were actually still alive and could actually be asked about their eyewitness experience. Now, I want to zoom out just for a moment out of this chapter into the scope of 1 Corinthians as a bit of a whole. And Paul's approach here, listing off all these people, actually makes a lot of sense within the scope of the book as a whole. See, up to this point, Paul has actually been pretty harsh with the Corinthian people. He's been calling out some pretty egregious sin. In fact, many consider 1 Corinthians to be one of Paul's harshest letters as he rails upon these people for the sin that they are willingly engaging in. We also read at the beginning of the letter that Paul specifically addressed that some of these people within the church had sort of attached themselves to specific leaders. So some of them really followed Peter's teaching and some of them liked a guy named Apollos. There's a bit of division in who they decide to trust and follow. And at this point, it's almost as though Paul understands or realizes that some of the Corinthians might not want to hear what he has to say at this point. They might not be super enthused about listening to what he has to say. I think about it this way. Um, when I was a kid, and admittedly, I still struggle with this sometimes. When I was a kid, I'll say when I was a kid, I had a problem in school of speaking out of turn. I was the person who, when the teacher asked a question, rather than raise my hand like a good child, I would just shout out the answer immediately. Now, my brain was really quick at the time. I don't know what's happened recently. My brain was quick at the time. I didn't really have a lot of friends. And I think, I don't think I ever had this thought, but I think subconsciously I had convinced myself that if I can demonstrate my knowledge and my understanding, that somehow that would prove my value to the people around me. That would prove my worth. So whenever the teacher would ask a question, I was quick to shout out a response or think of other options or other alternatives. But as anyone who's spent any time in a classroom knows, that is not very conducive to the learning of the group when one person keeps shouting over top of everyone else. And so occasionally I needed to be put in my place and the teacher would call out my bad behavior in front of the entire class. While the shame of public discipline definitely kept me quiet, at least for a while, but I will also say that after that point, I wasn't really very compelled to pay attention to what the teacher has to say after they had shamed me because of my bad behavior. And I kind of wonder if something like that is happening here with Paul as well. But what he's saying is that the content is so crucial. What we're talking about is of first importance. This is the gospel. Paul doesn't want his readers to miss it, even if they're frustrated with him. So instead, it's almost as though he points to all these other people. Let's mention Peter, because I know some of the people follow Peter. Let's mention the 12, the other apostles as well. Don't just take my word for it. All of these people saw it. You can go ask them for yourself. What's interesting, though, is we remember here that Paul is writing to believers. So these are people who, as he himself wrote above, have already believed in the gospel, that Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead. So when listing off all of these eyewitnesses, many of whom were still alive and even accessible, Paul isn't necessarily trying to convince skeptical readers that this event really happened. It's not as though he's trying to say, I need to prove to you that Jesus was raised. But rather, again, he's reminding and emphasizing what the gospel is. That it's preached based on eyewitness events 
and that Christ's literal physical resurrection is an essential component of that message. You cannot have the gospel without the literal physical resurrected Christ. And here are all the people that saw it. Peter and the apostles and the 12 and 500 other people saw this person, Jesus, with their own physical eyes. An essential component to the gospel. Verse 8. And last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. Now, this is a fascinating verse for a couple different reasons. Well, first of all, Paul's experience with Jesus on the road to Damascus with the bright light and the voice in his head, that happened after the ascension of Christ. And yet Paul counts it here as a physical experience. His conversion was a response and result to seeing the physical Jesus. In fact, he says this is the last time anyone saw physical Jesus. Secondly, though, the term that he uses here to refer to himself is really interesting. In my translation, it says the one abnormally born. In the Greek, it's a very vivid term that actually would translate to the abortion or the one born too early, the one abnormally born. And this starts off a set of comments that ride the line between humble and self-deprecating. Let's keep reading in verse nine. For I, Paul, am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. As I said before, it's likely that Paul knew that not everyone receiving this letter in Corinth necessarily liked or even respected him. He was a latecomer to the party, so to speak, especially compared with the 12 who got to spend actual time learning with Jesus, a gestation period sort of thing. They got to spend time on earth with him. Well, Paul didn't have that. But rather than try and defend himself or get defensive at all, Paul here acknowledges his past. He says, I persecuted the church. And because of this, I don't even deserve to be where I am. He acknowledges his past. But he also embraces his present. He said, by the grace of God, I am what I am. Moreover, he uses this as an opportunity to point to the power and effect of God's grace in a person's life, his own. He says, I worked harder than all of them. Not me, the grace of God with me worked harder because I wasn't even fit to be here in the first place. Now, this can seem like a bit of a strange discourse. Paul is talking about the gospel, he's talking about the resurrection, all the people that saw Jesus, and then he starts talking about how terrible he is, how he really doesn't fit in. Seems like a bit of an unrelated rabbit trail. But if we go back to that theme I mentioned of vanity and uselessness, this actually fits right in because here's a demonstration of how not in vain or how not useless belief in the gospel is. Paul is using his own life as a demonstration. The power of the gospel is not wasted. It is not useless. It is not in vain, even on someone as far gone, so to speak, as Paul, the abortion, the persecutor, the weirdo. Think of his words in a later letter to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9. 
But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that the Christ's power may rest on me. He uses his own life as an example of how powerful the gospel is. It is not in vain. And then he concludes this section in verse 11. Whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach. And this is what you believed. So whether you heard it from Peter, or whether you heard it from Apollos, or you heard it from one of the 12, or one of the other apostles, or even little old me, Paul says, the message is the same. The gospel that changed my life is the same gospel that was preached to you, and the same gospel that you already believed. And so now, with all the details clarified, what is the gospel? Here is the gospel. This is what saves. It's all about Jesus making it absolutely clear that everyone's on the same page, talking about and understanding the same things, Paul's going to move on to address a problem. Verse 12. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, which it is, obviously he just did, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? So herein lies the problem. Evidently, there were some in the church in Corinth that did not believe in resurrection. Again, these are Christians. So it's not that they don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus per se, but rather it's most likely they don't believe in resurrection for anybody else. They don't believe in that promised hope that we sang about this morning. It was common even amongst pagan Greeks at the time, in fact, to believe in some form of eternal soul, but definitely not a resurrected body. That was just nonsense. So whatever hope these believers had was not of a physical resurrection. Well, Paul's going to say this is a problem for a lot of reasons. And using logic and a series of hypotheticals, Paul's going to demonstrate exactly why this is a problem. Verse 13 and 14. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless. And so is your faith. Wow. If there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless. And so is your faith. Using logic and reasoning, Paul explains that these resurrection deniers have a critical flaw in their belief system. You cannot believe that Christ was resurrected, but then say that there's no resurrection. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't line up. You can't have it both ways. So let's assume, Paul suggests, let's take a moment of hypothetical. Let's assume that you're right and there is no resurrection. Well, then logically that means that Christ was not resurrected. And if Christ wasn't resurrected, all of this is useless. All of this is worthless. All of this is in vain. Again, it's that same theme, using a different word this time. If Christ was not raised, then the apostles' preaching is absolutely useless because there is no point in preaching a gospel if the events of that gospel did not actually happen. That is not good news, which is what gospel means. And if that is the case, let's keep going with the hypothetical. If that's the case, then any faith that's as a result of that preaching 
is also useless. Because what are you even believing in? Without Christ's resurrection, it's either lies or it's an incomplete truth. And that also is not good news. If someone convinces me that I can fly, it doesn't matter how much I believe it when I jump off that church steeple, because if it is untrue, I'm going to die. Without truth, beliefs are useless. If Christ was not raised, what is the point of any of this? Going to keep going. It gets better. Verse 15. More than that, we, that is Paul, those who preached, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. Repetition wants to get his point across here. If there's no resurrection, it's not even just that their preaching is useless or that people's faith is useless, but those who have shared and spread that gospel, they're false witnesses. They're actively liars. If no one is raised, Jesus wasn't raised. Well, we preach the gospel that God raised Jesus. So if that didn't happen, we've now lied about God, he basically says. And more than that, you, Corinthians, you followed us. You're trusting and following a bunch of liars if there's no resurrection. And we're liars about God. And even if you don't believe in resurrection, you definitely believe in God. Seems like it'd be pretty bad to believe a bunch of lies about God, Corinthians. As he wraps up this grouping of points and prepares for another, he restates again, if the dead aren't raised, Christ hasn't been raised. This is a pivotal line of logic in his equation here. And in case all of those negative points already were not enough, he's going to continue. Verse 17. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we of all people, sorry, we are of all people, most to be pitied. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Same theme again, futility, worthlessness, uselessness, vanity, different word again, this time associated with our sins. If Christ isn't raised, we're still in our sins. Because without the last five words of that 10 word gospel, the first five don't really mean that much. Without and rose from the dead, it's not Christ died for our sins. It's just Christ died. Because how can someone promise salvation from your sins and death if he himself is dead in the grave? It's the fact that Christ was raised that gives authenticity to the claim that his death was sufficient for the sins of humanity. Without it, he's just another guy that made big claims and then died. And again, that is not good news. Now hitting rock bottom here, Paul basically explains, if Christ isn't raised, there is no hope. We are hopeless. The dead, they're dead. They're gone. There's no hope for them. And when we die, there's nothing else for us either. We're just dead if Christ wasn't raised. There's nothing. 
And if your hope in Christ is only for this earthly life, that's hardly something worth hoping for. What is the point of believing in something so temporary and so fleeting? In fact, if that's the gospel we believe, he says, we are a sad, sad group and ought to be pitied for how little hope we have. It's like a great place to end a joyous Easter sermon, eh? If Christ is not raised, there's no hope. The dead are dead. Why? What, what is there in this life? If you just die and then you die, there's no hope. If that's all we believe in, people should pity us the most. Because that is not good news. However, I think today is the perfect day for this very discourse. Because as negative as this section of verses are, friends, they're all based on a hypothetical premise that there is no resurrection of the dead. And while we remember and acknowledge Jesus's resurrection every week, today is the day above all others that we joyously shout and sing, he is risen. Thank you. (laughs) I was really afraid when they announced lockdown that I'd be standing here with just an empty room and no one would respond to that statement. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Because Christ is raised, we have hope in him for this life and for the next. We don't need to be pitied. Because Christ is raised, the dead in Christ are not lost, but will be raised to live eternal. Because Christ is raised, we are freed from the bondage of sin. That price was paid, and our faith is not futile. Because Christ is raised, the apostles are not liars, but true witnesses of the miraculous. Preachers of the true gospel that is the power of God unto salvation. The reason we are here today, the reason we have eternal hope, the reason we have salvation and freedom and peace and comfort and the church and the Bible, God's very word to us, is all built upon the foundation that Christ was raised. He is risen. Indeed. Now, if you're here today and you're listening to this, you're inevitably in one of two positions. We're going to make it pretty black and white here. Either you believe in the resurrection or you don't. Those are kind of the two options that Paul is addressing here. I'm going to guess that most people who have made the effort to come to church or tune into a live stream on Easter Sunday during a pandemic probably believe in the resurrection. And if that's the case, Paul has some words for us in just a moment, and we'll get to that. But if you are here today, or you're tuning in online, you're listening, and you don't believe in the resurrection, you don't believe in the resurrection of Christ, today I would invite you to ask yourself, what's holding me back? What's stopping me from believing? If you've made it this far in a sermon, and you're still actually paying attention, I'm going to guess that you're not completely closed off to the idea So what is stopping you from believing today? In Romans 10, 9, Paul writes, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Belief equals salvation. But what's the risk? I know it might sound unbelievable. It might sound far-fetched. It might even sound weird. 
But what's the risk? A few weeks ago, Jim reminded us there are numerous things in the world that we cannot see or understand that we as humans believe in. Like air conditioning. Wi-Fi. What is Wi-Fi? How does it work? How can I look at my phone and have a video of my face show up to someone on the other side of the planet through no cables or wires just floating in the air? Doesn't make sense. You can't see it. It works, and we believe in it anyways. If you told someone about FaceTime 100 years ago, you would be the weird one. We believe in weird things all the time. So I ask again, if you don't believe that Christ was raised, what is stopping you? Consider that this morning. The majority of us here, however, as I said before, likely believe in the resurrection. And unfortunately, it's easy for us to hear a message like this and wonder, well, now what? <laughs> right? We're here today and we're reminded of the resurrection or considering the implications of not believing the resurrection. Well, I already believe. So now what? <laughs> What's the point? Yes, Andrew, I believe. Paul makes it clear that it's wrong or bad. It doesn't make sense if you don't believe. Well, I believe. So there we go. Let's go home. <laughs> well, no. <laughs> We've only covered a portion of this chapter today. And in the verses that follow... Paul goes on to a few more hypotheticals. And I encourage you today, if you're not doing anything else because of a lockdown, go home and read the rest of 1 Corinthians 15. But eventually, Paul gets to his own now what statement in verse 58 of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. I'm going to read that again. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. There's that theme again. So if you're listening today and you believe in the resurrection, here's the call. We're going to stand firm. We're going to work hard. And we're going to praise God. I added that one in myself, but I think it's applicable. So first of all, stand firm. Paul has shown how quickly things fall apart when the foundation isn't solid. How easy we can be led astray when we aren't sure what we believe in. So build your faith on the resurrection of Jesus and hold fast to the truth of the gospel. Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead. Build your foundation and stand firm. Second is work hard. Paul says, always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Our faith is not useless. Our faith is not worthless. It's not futile. It's not in vain. It has value. And as Paul demonstrated with his own life, the power of the gospel, the power of the resurrected Jesus yields results. Serving the Lord is not pointless and focusing on faithfulness is of incredible worth. Your work is not in vain, but work hard. And finally, praise God. Not something Paul says here, but I think how can we read passages like this and not be stirred up to worship him on a morning like today. He says, if Christ was not raised, all of this is worthless. Well, Christ is raised, so let's celebrate. Let's praise him together. 
The almighty God who loved us so much, he sent his son to die to pay the cost of our sins, but did not leave him in the grave, rose him up victorious over sin and death, and by his grace has offered us the same. And if that's not good news, we're celebrating this Easter. I don't know what is.